2: I've got this picture of you, Tom, sitting there staring at this sheet of list of drivers and trying to organise who's going to be in the press conference. My brain. My brain was mush. I mean, you work so hard.
0: And I don't. I don't work hard. But my Do you brain get any
2: therapy or <laughs> anything, you know, to
0: help. This you is my a... therapy. You are my therapy. <laughs> well, I tell you, what, it is hard when you're having to look at this Excel spreadsheet Because the teams want to know who's in the press conference, up to and including Hungary now, and I'm just staring, looking at all these lines of of drivers' names. And actually, we've got uh, Hamilton and Alonso in the press conference in um, in Monaco, which should be quite tasty. Anyway, so I suppose we ought
2: to start the show then, Tom. You take it away. Come on, you know what to do. Well, so do you. Well, we can have a competition if you like. Then we'll see who does the best intro. Welcome to this week's episode of F1 Nation. Where we think about the upcoming race, which is the Monaco Grand Prix.
0: Right. Well, if I'm starting the show this week, I want a drum roll. Have we got a drum roll on this machine? I think we've got a drum roll. Right, here we go. Welcome, everyone, to F1 Nation with me, Tom Clarkson, and that man there, Damon Hill.
2: <laughs> I think you win. <laughs> nice one. <laughs>
0: So, Damon, it's been a lay week from Formula One, a week off. What have you been up to? Well, um, I've recovered from my 100-mile bike ride. Um, uh, to be
2: honest, about Thursday, I just suddenly felt really tired. That's <laughs> catching up with me. And then I went surfing. So I've been spent the last two days in the wave, which I, I think gets quite a few mentions on this show <laughs> down in Bristol. And I'm even more exhausted now. My upper body has had it. I'm I get hit in the head by the board. I've got a bruise on my forehead. Oh, man. But it is such fun. It is such a lot of fun.
0: Well, that sounds cool. Uh, and as you asked, um, I've had a nice week as well. I've uh, I've done a couple of interesting chats, actually, this week. I was chatting to James Allison, Mercedes technical voice. Oh, yes. you know he was fascinating about Lewis Hamilton and his desire to win. He described Lewis as being haunted By the need to win. Haunted. I thought that was such a good description. Can you relate to that? Well, I think all racing
2: drivers have this desire to win. Michael Schumacher said something interesting when I won the championship. He said, I'm really pleased for him because I think he needs it. And, you know, that's, that need to win is different from wanting to win, isn't it? And I think that that's an interesting. We'll be very keen to I'll listen to your uh, interview with him.
0: Why did Schumacher think you needed it?
2: Well, he, it's interesting when, when your opponent seems to know you better than you know yourself. I think you drive yourself in order to get the result. You have to be prepared to, to go way past your own limits. And why would you do that unless you really needed it? But, I mean, Lewis has talked about races and there not being a meaning. So his, his support of the Black Lives Matter movement, I think last year, gave him a sense of meaning. So he knew what he was doing when he was racing. He wasn't just driving a car for himself. He wasn't just winning because uh, it's more, more prize money or whatever it is for him. He had some other reason for doing it. And I think those things are motivators. And I think Ayrton Senna was clearly doing it for more than just winning races. So it is an interesting
0: concept. Now, funny you should mention and Senna, because another guy I've spoken to this week is Joe Ramirez, who used to work for McLaren. And we were talking about, funnily enough, an incident that you were kind of involved with, DH. Suzuka 93... When Senna had come up to, and lapped Eddie Irvine and then Irvine unlapped himself because he was scrapping with you on the racetrack. yeah. And then Senna goes and, and, and lamps Irvine in the Jordan hospitality after the race. And so we were just getting Joe's, <laughs> <laughs> Joe's <laughs> thoughts on that. Oh, and he said Senna Ayrton was so wound up after the race, he said. And then I think he'd been egged on by Berger as well. I think Berger had been saying, go, go and have a go at him. Oh, yeah, Irvine, it's his first race. We didn't get a chance to ask Gerhard <laughs> about the truth about that, did we? But I think Gerhard was a very naughty man.
2: And I think he definitely wound up um, Ayrton. And so Ayrton was, was well charged by, when he, by the time he got down there. But it was, um, <laughs> Eddie kind of goaded him as well. Eddie is like that, Eddie. Can be quite in your face. Any other news? Any other news this week, DH? What's caught you? What's caught your eye? Um, well, I think that uh, in, in the lay week we've had um, more. To, it's more to do with races and changes of calendar. And uh, I see we've had a dropout in, in uh, Turkey. So again, we're going to go for our two weeks in Austria. Well, I might not be going, but um, you will
0: be. I will be. That works for me. Red Bull Ring, uh, fantastic venue. And um, I actually get to stay in a ski resort when I'm there, uh, so it's it's not a hardship. Go, spending two weeks there, so that's your little
2: holiday, your little uh, trip away. You've got nice uh, Styrian countryside to to amuse yourself with. But uh, what about us us folk back here? You know, what point do you think we'll be at that point in the championship? Because this championship is is now looks like Lewis is stretching his legs a little bit, isn't he? Moving away slightly. Our Red Bull screwing it up uh, with mistakes? Is Max. You know, tripping over himself to win. You know, these are the questions we don't know the answers to. I think Monaco, it's not always a circuit that suits Mercedes. I'm not sure Monaco is a circuit that suits Mercedes more than the Red Bull. Actually, we've got got an interview with Jackie, haven't we? So Jackie Stewart on late and we'll ask him what he thinks about the potential result from Monaco. Uh, Will Max Verstappen show a little bit more competitiveness or the Red
0: Bull be more suited to Monaco? I think it will be. Well, it's 14 points, the gap between the two of them isn't it and the tide does let's hey how many sort of surfing references can we get into the whole show okay the tide needs to turn i think for max because i think if lewis keeps just totting up the points before he knows it he's going to be a, a win ahead and uh, and then that becomes a uh, much more of a strategic game for hamilton so he needs to get back on that winning wave and start in monaco this weekend he's he is actually on the crest of a wave isn't he Tom, have you noticed?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think he's riding along on the crest of a wave at the moment. Uh, and I mean, what he did, but you see, because Max, if you go to Barcelona, Max did uh, technically what he did there was he dropped in on Lewis's wave, basically. Wave. Lewis is going for the corner and this
0: guy just dives in there. Max, actually, that's, that's a great analogy. Max has no surfing etiquette, does he? He just gets in there and barges people out the way. Yeah, he,
2: he took priority from Lewis. Basically, on the first corner. So, will we see uh, the same? You know, I think we're going to see some wipeouts. Definitely going to see some wipeouts. So <laughs> <Sweet laughs> I think we've run out of <laughs> we've run out of surfing
0: uh, references. <laughs> oh dear! But hey, you say that you don't think Monaco is going to be uh, a Mercedes track. Well, I always look at the final sector in Barcelona. You know that twisty Chicanes. Uh, You never raced on that layout, did you? But that really slow and and Mercedes were blisteringly quick through sector three. So I think that bodes well for them for Monaco. They were quicker than than Red Bull through that final sector.
2: The clumsy chicane. Yeah, I hate that. I hate hate that thing. But tell you what, he did look amazing actually on the exit of that chicane. Lewis in qualifying, do you remember his quickest lap? He actually got a wheel over that sausage curb. And managed to hold on to it. It didn't look like he was going to
0: lift off. And he got a real tank slapper. And he just, he still, that was his fastest lap. Damon, tell us about the mentality of the drivers coming into Monaco. Because is it all about qualifying? Is it all about Saturday afternoon? Is that your only focus from the first lap of the weekend?
2: Yeah, you know what the race strategy is going to be, isn't it? I mean, stay out in front and and try not to stop. You know, that's that's it. So you have to get the car on the front row uh, at very least. Otherwise, you're going to be looking at other people's gearboxes the whole for 2 hours or whatever it is so qualifying and it's a test of drivers this is more than anything else it's a test of technique and being in the zone mentally
0: 100% concentration do you push as hard at Monaco as you would at somewhere like Silverstone, where you've got runoff? I don't think you can. I, I've I've said it's. I, I feel like you've got a
2: straitjacket on when you go to Monaco. You f- you feel very claustrophobic, and and I see drivers sometimes. People like Rubens used to always like rub up against the armco, and I I don't think I ever really did that. I mean, I, I never managed to sort of get over that feeling that if if I let it go too hard, I'm going to lose a wheel. But um, quite a few of them sort of bounce off the the armco and use it as a kind of a like, you know, when you go bowling and you can get them to put the sides up. Yeah,
0: yeah that's me. <laughs> it's like, that is 100% me.
2: So it stops it going in the gutter. But basically that's the Armco. Is The Armco is there to... You can use it, but my God, you know, you've got to just brush it. You can't hit it too hard.
0: I remember my first visit to Monaco in the mid-90s. And funny enough, you were one of the first cars I saw on track. And I was standing at the entry to the swimming pool. And in those days... You could stand on the wall, <laughs> on the sort of left apex, because of course the, the the walls were much closer than they've been pushed back recently. But and just the fierce commitment of you guys going into that swimming pool, y- you say you say you're not kissing the walls, but that doesn't mean you're, you're not committed. Mm. It was fearsome. No, you're right. Uh, I mean, we we've, we've been very lucky. I
2: mean, I've been very lucky in my youth to get the right passes at Monaco, and i've been able to walk around the outside of the track right next to the barrier you know bernie would give me a pass and i i was actually able to walk the entire during the race walk right next to the side of the track and there's a picture in one of the auto course annuals just going into the tunnel of alan pross going around portier is it and uh in the background there's me and my two mates walking past the the armco on the on the seaside but there's nothing like it there's no where else you can get that close to cars and, and you really start to realise how powerful these things are, even in the pit lane. I mean, you're standing in the pit lane and they go past us on a pit lane limiter of about, what was it, 50 miles an hour maximum. It's slower in Monaco, actually, but yeah. Is it slower yeah. than 50? Okay, so you, you get the sense of this beast going past you. You know, you, it sucks up all the dust off the tarmac and it shoots it out so you can see all the aerodynamics working as well. They are really scary monsters. When you get that close to them and when they're at full speed going through the swimming pool section,
0: it is awe inspiring. Absolutely mm, awe inspiring. Mm. And you get Monaco specialists as well. I mean, Pastor Maldonado always used to go brilliantly at Monaco. Yet <laughs> was sort of only Mr. Average really at other tracks. It's funny that, isn't it? Yeah, I do
2: think some somehow aggressiveness seems to pay off if that kind of rally technique. And maybe Robert Kubica, you know, I thought he was absolutely brilliant fantastic through one of the best ever qualifying laps I've ever seen is one of his Monaco pole laps uh, not pole it wasn't a pole lap but it was uh, it was a qualifying lap through the swimming pool section that absolutely took my breath away and Nigel Mansell I saw Nigel on one of his qualifying runs at the top of the hill going into the casino and he came over the crest at the top and I thought he's not going to stop there's no way he can get that through the corner and he and he did you know, this is back going back to the turbo Honda uh, Williams and so that was you know it was absolutely
0: terrifying to watch who else are we looking forward to seeing in Monaco this week? So we, we've got Lewis, we've got Max. It's going to be nothing between them. But who else do you think is going to go well? I don't know. Danny's won a race there. I think he's quite good there.
2: Yeah, Dan Ricciardo. And I think Charles Leclerc is, I think it's an opportunity for him. I think he's the kind of driver, I think, who can can pull something magic
0: out at somewhere like Monaco. And just to go back to my Sector 3 in Barcelona, Ferrari didn't look too bad there as well, so good mechanical grip from that car as well. So Leclerc, yeah, and can you imagine if Leclerc put it on the front row and then he just hold everybody up? Yeah. You can't get past.
2: You need a nimble car. I mean, you talk about good mechanical grip. I mean, I just talked about them going down the pit lane. You know, once they're going above sort of 60, 70 miles an hour, the the aero is is working all all the way. So if they do need to be able to have a, a car that can ride undulations, but it needs to be nimble and just well well balanced a car that the drivers can throw around if it's lazy if it doesn't move if you turn and nothing happens you know the back doesn't start to take a set then you can't get around those corners and you looked, someone did a graphic i saw a graphic recently of the length of this year's mercedes next to a 1988 honda mclaren and they're about they're about four foot longer mm. i mean it's ridiculous mm. You know, they are. So you're driving a coach almost <laughs> by comparison to, to what you used to drive around here. And, and when Jackie won, he drove a short, he had a short wheelbase Matra. Um, sorry, Tyrrell. And I've seen that thing at Goodwood. And it's so short. It's untrue. It's like a go-kart. I mean, no. what? It would have been brilliant around Monaco, but quite, quite nervy. But um, it was almost square. You know, the wheelbase was almost square. Was these ones now, they're so long. When was your first trip to Monaco? Talking of Jackie. Well, it wasn't. I never went with my dad raced. So um, I missed I missed all that. I don't know why. I think probably I was at school and they, they, you know, it wasn't didn't fit into the program. It
0: wasn't that your mum and dad didn't want you to go to the race because of the potential accident or anything like that. It was just because. No, no. Otherwise,
2: I think my dad was probably having too much fun as well. I didn't didn't want the kids around. Um, Probably something to do with it. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought it's a good place to bring your kids. It's a lot of walking and a lot of stairs, as you know, and uh, it's difficult to get around. But, but it was also, as it's, uh, I think it was at school time. So we used to go to Monza, but uh, at the end of the season, end of the summer holidays.
0: DH, there are some great landmarks in Monaco as well. And I'm reminded of, do you remember two or three years ago? Or maybe it was longer, I can't remember. But you and I had a, we had a tour of the cellar of the Hermitage Hotel, right? So the Hermitage is the hotel as you're going up the hill, isn't it? Towards Casino Square on the left. And you and I, I don't know what we were doing, probably up to no good. But anyway, we were, we ended up in the cellar, didn't we? And how many bottles of wine was it in that cellar? Was it 400,000 bottles of wine? Uh, It was a lot
2: of, it was a lot of cellar. I know that. And a lot, of, a lot of shells, and this guy was very proudly showing us stuff that went back to like the French Revolution. There was like bottles of wine. It was mad. I mean, no one's, no one's going to open that, are they?
0: I don't know what, g- bats will fly out or something. <laughs> and I remember you making a beeline towards, uh, they, had, they have a sort of, it's all done in years, isn't it? And you ran to the, the 1996 section. <laughs> yeah. I won, I won in the wrong year. Apparently 95
2: was much better year for wine. <laughs> oh, well. God, I miss that. But um, <laughs> but I, did, I got some I, I did take a few pictures down there. It was uh, it was incredible seeing these really old bottles of wine. Yeah. And presumably someone goes into the hotel, uh, the hotel de Paris and goes, uh, I'll have one of the, you know, Louis Latour uh,
0: 1750s, please. Yes, that'll be 50,000 euros, sir. Yeah, no problem. Because it's Monaco. Well, hey, and actually talking of big money, have you ever been into the casino? I, I, I did. Yeah, I've been into the casino. We, we did a we did a film shoot in the casino. No, 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 no bad. no, forget filming. No. Forget filming. Have you ever been in there because you just want to have a go?
2: Uh, I'm not a gambling man, uh, Tom. It doesn't, it doesn't appeal to me. I don't get it. I walk in there and I just think, there's all these people looking really kind of haunted and, and sort of stressed. <laughs> and, uh, and they're all sitting staring at a table. No, I haven't. But my dad... Really curiously, before my dad even knew about motor racing, he was in the National Service and he went to Monaco on the HMS Swiss Shore and he went up to the casino and won a few bob. Walked in, won some money, left, and he never even knew they had a Grand Prix at Monaco. And about five years later, he's actually racing in his first Grand Prix in Monaco.
0: That is a great story. I
2: think the money was spent already by them.
0: We've got more insights into Monaco, a historic race on the F1 calendar, coming up. But we just wanted to let you know that if you like incredible stories from F1 history, you'll love our new documentary podcast, F1 on the Edge. Episode one, Monaco's Lost Diamond, is out now. Here's a little preview. On the noses of Jaguar's Formula One cars, sparkling diamonds are speeding through the streets of Monaco
2: at 150 miles per hour.
0: They were beautifully cut, flawless
2: diamonds. Worth three or $400,000 each.
1: Suddenly, one of the diamond-encrusted Jaguars is skidding out of control towards the metal
2: barrier. The driver is unhurt. But what about the stone? Where has the diamond gone?
1: Somebody
0: has taken it or somebody's stolen it. Are
2: you suggesting a team member pocketed a large diamond? (laughs) Admittedly. Did it cross my mind to take them off? 100%. There were plenty of people who never believed it was a real diamond on the car.
0: It's somewhere. It can't just have disappeared. Somebody knows where this is. To hear the full, incredible story of Monaco's lost diamond, listen to F1 On The Edge, out now, exclusively on Spotify hang on a minute look who's in the waiting room now that's a face that i recognize and you have known that face for a long time
2: and i'm sure the listeners will recognize his voice as well shall we let him in it's rude to keep him waiting tom well we're of course completely honored to have sir jackie stewart winner of three formula one world championships and dare I say it, one of the all-time great racing drivers, if not great human beings. I've given out quite a fulsome praise to Lewis Hamilton, so I'm going to give one to Jackie as well and say he's also one of the greatest human beings ever to have walked the planet. And uh, he never stops working, so we're very, very grateful to have you, Jackie, on the show, and, and we're really keen to get your insights on the Monaco experience. And... There's no one better to talk to, really, than yourself. Maybe, maybe my dad, if he'd been here, because he did win it rather a lot. But we'll, we'll, we'll. You can comment on that. He would have more tales to tell as well. <laughs> he would have
0: maybe some he couldn't tell. Ah, uh, Jackie, how are you? It's lovely to see you.
1: Well, I'm in good form, I think. I'm doing a lot of walking with my dogs and uh, getting fit. I've got a gym downstairs, so I'm probably better than I've been for quite a long time in physical terms. I'm going to go to Monaco for the Grand Prix, and that'll be the first Grand Prix I've been to since Portugal uh, last year. Where where are you right now? You're in Switzerland or in, in I'm at home in Switzerland, yes, indeed. Beautiful sunshine, lovely sky and quite nice and warm. Famously,
2: you avoided serious injuries when you were racing. Nowadays, Jackie, the drivers are super fit. I'm sure you don't do it, but we can follow Lewis Hamilton in his bathroom with his top off on Instagram. He he likes to post pictures of himself, and he's obviously very fit. But you look back at the drivers of your era, my dad's era, and what did they do for fitness back then? Because I saw a picture of Jim Clark, and I have to say, he didn't look
1: too buff. Keep in mind, the races were much longer in my day. The fatigue level was much higher than it is today without doubt. Because when I see the guys getting out the cars today, they're fresh in comparison to what we were going through. And your father and Jimmy and Nigel Mansell as well, and all sorts of people right through the period, um, not just in my time, but shortly thereafter. I kept myself fit. I had a trainer. I, I always did a lot of running. I always thought I had to be fit. I mean, a, a Grand Prix takes a long time in those days. I mean, 100 laps around Monaco, for example, is a lot more than 60 laps. And the 40 to make the 100 is when you're most tired and you're, you're dehydrated because there's no fuel getting into your mouth, no water, no nothing that gave you more energy. So you had to be fit. And your, your dad won Monaco what, five times, was it? I won four, actually, because I count my Formula 3 as a great win. It was one of my biggest wins because that got everybody's attention. When you win the Formula 3 race in Monaco, you're almost guaranteed to get a drive in Formula 1 the following year. But that wasn't a long race.
0: (laughs) Jackie, look, we're talking Monaco. You've had great success, as you've just said. What does it take to do well through the streets of the principality?
1: Not drive too quickly. can never overdrive in Monaco. It's a very uh, demanding circuit. Uh, You can't make mistakes. Your concentration must be absolutely right. You've got to have a decent starting position. It's still the crown jewels of Formula One. It's still the most glamorous, the most colorful, the most exciting. And in my day, keep in mind, it was the swinging 60s and 70s. The Beatles were there. The Stones were there. Elizabeth Taylor was there, all sorts of fancy folk because of the Cannes Film Festival and the Princess Grace bringing a lot of people to Monaco that might never have gone to a Grand Prix. You know, it was different. I think the concentration fact uh, must be about the same. But I think the fatigue was was much higher. Um, I mean, no power steering, definitely gear shifting. You would do 28 gear shifts per lap for 100 laps and you would be bleeding with your gloves on and a brm certainly anyway whatever you're in it's tough and i think monaco's still that way you can't make mistakes you can't kiss the wall do you think
2: that it suits some drivers more than others because it's very claustrophobic i found it you know it's a little bit well someone described it as trying to ride a i think it was pk said it's like trying to ride a bicycle in your bathroom you know there is the sense that you cannot get your elbows out but some drivers seem to take to it and some you know is there a kind of style of driving
1: you think that suits monaco i've always felt you've got to be very smooth in monaco most people try to bully a car in monaco that's quite the wrong thing to do nobody likes to be bullied whether it's man woman or machine and if you make love to the car if you're gentle with the car if you coax the car into doing things you go much faster uh, and that happens, and of course, a, a high-speed racetrack. Also, it was much more evident because you're so close to everything. there got no runoff space at all. There's nowhere where there's runoff space. And in those days, there was little or no light in the tunnel. Now it's it's beautiful. I mean, there's like daylight in the tunnel now. So there's a lot of things in Monaco that are different than any other racetrack, even though there's other road courses everywhere from time to time, but nothing as tight as Monaco. And what about
0: Graham Hill, Jackie? I mean, Mr. Monaco, five wins. You got three in Formula One. Talking about drivers suiting the track, what was it
1: about Graham? Well, he was incredibly focused. Uh, He was um, really a very focused man when he was in a racing car. There are some people who, who are more relaxed. Jimmy was more relaxed, but Graham was always right in everything he did with regards to the preparation. His preparation was much more focused, I think, than any other racing driver that I know. Because in those days, you were communicating with the mechanics. There were no, uh, you know, no electronic help coming through from the car for everybody in the garage to see what you were doing wrong. In this particular case in Monaco, you had to drive the car to finish first. First, you must finish. And Graham Hill knew how to do that, Uh, not just at the Nürburgring uh, or, or Monte Carlo, where they were demanding circuits because of the number of corners. In the case of Monaco, it was because there was no space anywhere. And there wasn't any space at the Nürburgring either. So both of those racetracks, you could not make an error on. Graham was an incredibly focused man. And he was a serious man. He was a very serious man. He was a great. Tour as well but when he was driving a racing car a race weekend Graham was a pretty focused guy you didn't get much out of him
2: you you said actually jackie in the introduction to i think one of his books you said that he had a frightening intensity you know sometimes frightening his intensity and i think i can understand a little bit what you're saying <laughs> having been his son
1: <laughs> he was a frightening man when he was being serious. I mean, he did not suffer fools gladly. And that applied to mechanics or team principals or teammates even. He was a very serious, methodical, focused, I think more than anybody else I've ever met behind the wheel of a racing car. I don't think he had quite the natural ability that a jimmy had or maybe other drivers have had. But he made himself fast, and he was absolutely meticulous with his setup. He had the wee black book with everything on it, every adjustment that was made. I I think you
2: you're absolutely right. I would totally agree with that, and I would put forward once an idea that my dad had, what he had, perhaps. In abundance was a power of concentration and that also has an effect with you know that's affected by your fitness and I wondered whether him having rowed when he was younger I think maybe he had the ability to stay focused throughout a Grand Prix a long Grand Prix like Monaco maybe a little bit better than the others
1: well I think you've brought up the right subject because if you're a rower you're on the limit for a very long time with muscular pain as a roar, I'm sure. I'm not one, but I watch them. And I think to myself, wow, that's painful. From about the first five seconds or 10 seconds out, you're pulling and pushing and and against an incredible amount of effort. And in those days, there definitely was more physical participation from the driver than there is today, for sure. I would lose six pounds at least, driving a Grand Prix and you're, you, you'll you be soaked. So your father was a very fit man. It was a hidden asset of his, his determination and the physical condition that he found himself in. Because you never saw your father retiring. You never saw him coming in with, you know, absolutely drenched in perspiration and not being able to go onto the podium. Or ever fall off the podium. And you saw lots of drivers doing that in later years. You know, whether it was PK or whether it was Manso, or whether it was quite a few drivers had problems, you know, keeping up with it after the race was finished. So your father was a tough, tough guy physically. He may not have been winning Mr. World but I don't know I, I'd, fortunately I didn't see him naked very often <laughs> <laughs> But I mean it, you mentioned the
2: podium I mean you know in some ways this is a very kind of gallant sport isn't it because it showed you that all that pain and suffering but at the end of it you get a chance to go up and, and kiss uh, uh, Grace
1: Kelly or maybe shake hands I've got a whole <laughs> bunch of pictures up here on the wall the number of me winning Grand Prix in Helen being by my side and being kissed while I'm holding the trophy. All of that went on. It was more colorful, it was more glamorous, it was more exciting. The monarch of the day would be there in most of the Grand Prix circuits. And there was a a much more physical presence in the podium than there is today. And it was more glamorous in that respect. And again, I go back to say the swinging 60s and all of that. Uh, I say, you know, motor racing was dangerous and sex was safe in the swinging 60s.
0: (laughs) Jackie, in the swinging 60s, how hard was it not to get distracted at Monaco?
1: I think, again, it's part of the animal, part of the driver being able to switch off. I mean, I can remember lots of times when very fancy folk would be coming up to want to talk to you as a Grand Prix driver, whether it was, uh, you know, a famous movie star or whether it was a, a terrifically good looking girl or whether it was uh, one of the Greek, you know, Anassis or Nearchos coming up. I remember he came up to me and said, oh, I want to sit in your car, Jackie. And he sat in the car and and then he said, I want to just hear it while I'm in the cockpit. And Ken Tyrrell allowed him to was do that, it. Was
0: that just before the start? <laughs>
1: Yeah, this was not before the start of the race, but before the start of practice and qualifying, Uh, you know, maybe 15 minutes before the start and that sort of thing. But then the light goes out and in Monaco, you've got to be clean and you've got to not hit any curbs and you've got to, you know, lots of people are late, late breakers. You had to break fairly late, but don't break too late in Monte Carlo. And by the way, if you go in too fast, you come out too slow. I found out in Monte Carlo that I I didn't have to have the latest of braking, but sure as hell, I had to have a clean exit. And that's where the speed was going up that hill and the same going into the tunnel.
2: Do you think, Jackie, if you'd been my driver coach, I would have won won Monaco?
1: I don't see any reason why not. I think we could have changed you enough so that you would have won Monaco. (laughs) (laughs)
2: i definitely needed a bit of inspiration sometimes
0: hey dh what about the distractions of monaco for you
2: Uh, jackie was talking about all the the people on the grid i mean we won't be getting it this year sadly but um uh, you know it is a famous venue for people to want to appear and come on the grid and and martin grid walk was always littered with like far too many celebrities but there's a fantastic picture of jackie and my dad talking to peter sellers and Britt Eklund, I think. was it's Britt Is that right, isn't it? Yes. That was his girlfriend, I think, at the time. Fantastic, you know, scenes of these superstars of their era on the grid, literally minutes before they're about to get in the car. But your, your, Jackie didn't have lights. It wasn't lights out. It was a flag. A guy walked out with a flag and dropped it. But it was quite predictable, wasn't it? You could actually tell before he was going to drop it.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you just you mentioned uh, that wonderful man that your father and I were speaking to. I thought he was... He was speaking to Jim and I earlier, Jim Clark and I earlier, and I suddenly said to him, I said, I didn't know you were Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I'm not Scottish. But because Jimmy and I, he was such a mimic that automatically it sounded like a Scot. And that's the type of thing that went on in, in his days. No, I think that. The grid is still pandemonium in Monaco and maybe not so much this year because of the the virus and everything. There'll be fewer people on the grid. But that was part and parcel of Monte Carlo. That's what it made it what it was. All the drivers, we went to the palace on Saturday night, black tie dinner for maybe only 40, 45 people. And they were very well chosen people that David never would be there. And other stars that came in from the film festival, the Princess Grace, of course, was the magnet. These were and that was the night before the race, the Saturday night. And nobody thought that was wrong. I mean, it was perfect. And all the best drivers went. And you talk about the, um, the start with a flag. It was Louis Chiron that started there, and he won the monaco grand prix in a Maserati way back in the 20s and he was well past his best you know when i was driving and he was old and it was a big flag <laughs> and i found out fairly early on that and he would say no 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 not no 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 and he would be in the middle of the track Telling everybody, no, this is not, no, we're not ready yet. And then he would step back, but never got off what I would call the line of coming into the first corner. But when he had lifted the flag to go, I learned after about the second Formula One race I was at, he was so weak that his knees bent before The flag did. So as soon as his knees went, I went. I never went into the first corner. I never went into the first corner in Monaco when I won it, other than being first, because I left before everybody else, because Louis Shearer couldn't have stopped it. And Jackie, what
0: happens? Loads of people have asked me this, and obviously I can't give them the answer, but you can do it. What happens at the winner's party at the Palace on Sunday night?
1: Well, it was not as rowdy as you think, but we would all go down from the Paris to the, what was the name of that pub that we used to go to? And your father was the ultimate hero of that pub. Tip top pub, wasn't it? We all went there afterwards. Everybody went there afterwards. The the spectators were there, you hundreds of people. And it was a big, long party, a great night. And people weren't falling over. I mean, it was mostly beer they were drinking, not champagne. Again, it it happened there where it didn't happen anywhere else. That's why Monaco is so unique in my memory. And I was lucky enough to see it during these years. When I won my Formula 3 race, the first man who congratulated me was Juan Manuel Fangio. And I couldn't speak. I was so impressed. I was so impressed. Wow, that's wonderful. What about this year then, Jackie? We've got
0: Max Verstappen, Lewis Hamilton going hard at the front. Who do you think is going to do it this
1: weekend? I think Verstappen might be the driver going around Monaco quickly, but the Mercedes-Benz is still the best car on the track with a huge benefit to the driver. And that's its strength. And whether it's Lewis, who I think is the number one driver in on that team without any doubt. Um Bottas I think is very good but he's nothing in the same class. But the car is so good that he in fact can be a competitor and 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 could even win the race. But I think Lewis is driving better than he's ever driven and he knows Monaco very well now. Lewis has been driving for a very long time. He's a senior citizen really in Grand Prix lineups if you look at the the facts of his his career so therefore i think verstappen could be a serious threat to him because he drives very aggressively but he's he's a top line racing driver but the car definitely is no match for the mercedes
0: we are actuaries in a world filled with unpredictability we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere, and according to U.S. News and World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact seeker and a truth teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you.
1: We've
2: seen in the past a little bit of rivalry with Lewis and his teammate Nico Rosberg. Um, Nico did a good job in, in Monaco. And famously put in a quick time and then lost control of his car. And they brought out the red, f- red flag or the yellow flag. So Lewis couldn't improve. And then he actually won that race. And we're not seeing the same competitiveness with uh, Valtteri and friction, if you like, that there was with, with Rosberg and Lewis. As teammates go, Do you think it w- was it something that you experienced ever in your career where you had a teammate who was, let's say, out to get you, you know, to destabilize you? Well, I had Graham Hill. Well,
1: wow,
2: uh, <laughs> <laughs> I set that one up.
1: <laughs> uh, um, I had uh, I had Francois Sever. The others were not as good as both of them. And and I learned a lot from your dad. I learned a huge amount from your father for two years. I was his number two driver, and then I learned a lot from Jim Clark. Now Jim Clark never won the Monaco Grand Prix. Maybe one of the greatest drivers that have. Everdriven Maybe number two In the world for me Of all time
2: He's like me Jackie He's like me I'm like Jim Clark So I've never won The Monaco Grand
0: Prix either
1: (laughs) Oh dear That's so disappointing for me I never knew You'd never won it (laughs) Jackie Who
0: is going to be Having dinner With Prince Albert On Sunday night Who is going to win The Monaco Grand Prix Do you think
1: I think Verstappen
0: Or Lewis No no we need One name One name Verstappen There we go Mm. Heard it first. I bet he's right, Tom. He normally is, (laughs) isn't he? (laughs) All right, Damon, are you ready? your favorite part of the show
2: i'm a bit nervous with sir jackie uh sitting in on this one because i feel like i've got the headmaster here uh he's going to tell me if i've got the questions wrong (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) right watch this jackie (laughs) let's do it hi damon it's richard here from Ipswich. just wondering if you could design your perfect racetrack. which parts of which tracks would you take to build that track many thanks Richard, that's a really good question. I think that uh, racetrack design uh, is, it, is, thankfully, it's quite varied, but there are some, some places that have got corners that are a little bit too samey. So um, I don't think there's any doubt that there are corners that we all uh, have in our back of our mind as being the big challenging corners. You know, It used to be something like O Rouge, but Eau Rouge is pretty flat now in Formula 1, but it's still very exciting. So you definitely have O Rouge in there. You probably have 130R at Suzuka as well. Um, And I'd chuck in some chicanes. I would say maybe a couple of the Monza chicanes or the Hockenheim chicanes I used to love. And what else? The first and second Lesmo was, I used to love those corners and they got rid of them. Parabolica. And you'd have to have a long, long straight so we can all get a good toe and then a big stop at the end of it. So that's a bit of a mix-up of
0: Circuits. It's going to be a long old lap as well, isn't it, Damon? If you, by the time yeah,
2: it's going <laughs> to take
1: all year to get around there. <laughs> Jackie, what are your thoughts? The perfect racetrack, the Nurburgring, because it was by far the most demanding, with every kind of corner at every kind of speed. It was a nightmare. I closed the Nurburgring uh, because it was so dangerous, and I nearly, I got death rates for closing it. But it was still the most challenging racetrack that the world will ever see. There'll never be another Nurburgring. But if you went round Woodcote Corner at Silverstone in a Matra or a Tyrrell, when Woodcote was woodcut, 153 miles an hour you went through there, and there was no runoff area, and you were flat, if you got it right, flat. That was a track. So I couldn't tell you the number of corners I would choose in the Nurburgring uh, because there's too many, uh, 187 or something it is. But if I had only to choose one, I'd probably say woodcut flat was as important a corner as probably I can remember. You're right, Damon, about uh, Monza uh, and these big fast circuits, the Curve of Grandy without any wings on That gave your underwear a little bit of a surprise. So things like that. But at the end of the day, the absolute limit from a driver's point of view, uh, that would have been one of them as well. Guys, because it's the Monaco
0: Grand Prix week, I think we should doff our caps to Monaco. So from each of you, let's have the best corner at Monaco as well. When we say the best, I would say
2: you're talking about the difficultiness because it's, it's tricky. The entry to the swimming pool to back... Are really tricky but as a kind of iconic thing coming up the hill and then going into the casino and and this masonry is it that's the one
1: that's the one that <laughs> you don't want to get that wrong <laughs> jackie the most demanding for me was the swimming pool in the 003 short wheelbase very tricky very nervous to do that quickly was a big success. I've got a great photograph that I have of two guys on the wall looking at me going around right on the limit. And one of them's a poser and he's there to be seen. And the other one's saying, oh, shit, because uh, I'm right over the top with it. Whereas the corner that Damon mentioned at uh, the top of the hill before going into the casino square, I learned how to do that. And if you do that properly, you go into the corner early and drive round it. You don't go outside and go inside to the apex. There is no apex. It's a big long corner, and to do that well, it's not really troublesome. You did that, didn't you, Damon? Now you <laughs> tell me. <laughs> well, you never. I mean, if you had money, I would have given you all these answers.
0: <laughs> That's
2: it. I'm tighter. I'm tighter than you, Jackie.
0: I'm not. <laughs> Well, we've got one more, Jackie. Let's do our second question for Damon. This one from Mark Hatton. Hi, Damon. If you could undo one of your mechanical failures that happened over your career, which one would it be? What
2: a great question, Mark. I was waiting for someone. That is the perfect question for this one coming up to the Monaco Grand Prix. It would be the mechanical failure that put me out of um, winning a Monaco Grand Prix in 1996, I was leading the race comfortably and I'm afraid a plug came out of the sump or something in the engine and uh, the engine seized in the tunnel. That was the end of that. Jackie?
1: Mexican Grand Prix in 1968, I would have won the World Championship and therefore have taken away that championship from Graham Hill. And the Matra suddenly had fuel tank problems and going through right-handers, closed the engine. And I went from winning to not winning. And that took away the world championship for me. For the first world championship I would have had would have been that one. So that was the one that I think I remember most as, as this disappointment. <laughs> That was that was very generous
2: of you, Jackie. And uh, on behalf of the Hill family, I'd just like to say thank you for that mechanical failure.
1: Good, because your father always said you were an extravagant boy, and 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 I'm glad I helped that issue. You know, You're helping a great deal, yeah. in the best way. Jackie, how
0: how old was Damon when you first
1: met him? Well, I I think he might have been seven or eight. Uh, he, he behaved like he was two. But 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 uh, he was, I used to go down and stay at Mill Hill because I would go down from Scotland when I was with BRM for the first year as Graham was the number one and I was the number two driver. Uh, I would stay with the Hills. Damon Hill and his two sisters would come up and wake me in the morning, but jump all over my bed and give me a hard time. I'll never forgive him, actually. It's one of the reasons I don't see him very often. But it was great fun. I mean, to see, for me... Today, all these years afterwards, to be talking with Damon and having known him for such a long time, these are the little memories that are very, very special. And Damon and his dad and his mum, too, played such a big part in my life at that time because I learned so much from his father and all these little memories come up very strongly and and that's a real thing every single morning they would come up and and wake me up and abuse me (laughs) oh great memories
2: yeah yeah he's um he's i mean he's he obviously is sir jackie stewart but he's more like more like uncle jackie to 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 me anyway
0: damon did jackie give you any advice when you started racing
2: um, don't do it, I think, probably was sort of one of the, ad- that, the advices. <laughs> is but, that true, Jackie? Um, no, I don't think he ever said, no, Jackie never said don't do it, but I think that Jackie's opinion was it's best to just let people get on with their their, their careers, and if they are clearly doing something that's wrong, then you get you get a bit of uh, help and advice from, from people like Jackie.
1: Well, because he was Graham Hill's son, I was obviously interested in in seeing him do his things, motorcycles, before ever cars and in fact I told him not too long ago and he, he wasn't aware of it but I once I got a call from John Coombs who was one of the great men of british motorsport at that time and who his father drove for John Coombs in the lightweight T type and ferraris and all sorts of things and um, he phoned me up one day that Damon needed a new gearbox. Is there any way you could help, Jackie? So I bought the new gearbox for him, and he has no idea about that. I mean, we talked about it the other day, and he had no recall of it at all. So I I've called followed his career because Paul, my son, started racing, and Graham was, you know, no longer there, but Damon was starting his rise at that time. So I saw a lot of, you know, was going on at that time. So, uh, so how much was this gearbox,
2: Jackie? I've got my checkbook out. Look, I've got my so I can pay you back now.
1: Gearboxes were very expensive in these days. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was my it was my pleasure, I can assure you.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Uncle Jackie. <laughs>
1: so, hey, Damon, Damon
0: Damon. So, when Jackie had his own Formula 1 team, Stuart Grand Prix which you started in 1997, didn't you, Jackie? Did you ever think about asking Jackie for a drive? Because you were leaving Williams at the time, end of 96. Was it on the cards?
1: Quite the reverse. I was trying to get him to drive. Paul and I went all the way over to Ireland. All the way to
0: Ireland. All the way to Ireland. There's a great story here, Jackie. Talk us through it. So is this, what, mid-96, you're trying to get Damon for your new team? Is that what happened?
1: Well, We thought Graham was a big man, and we thought that his his son was doing okay, and we thought it would be great to have him in Stuart Grand Prix. And we were over there, and he was very nice and very hospitable in Ireland and a lovely house, and he said, well, let me think about it. And then he said, no. We were incredibly disappointed. But he did the right thing. He he drove for Jordan, and he, he won a Grand Prix. And we were a brand new team. But had he been there, he would have stayed at Stewart and he would have won like, like Johnny Herbert did win. And we might have even won more races. I don't know. But it was a loss for us, I can assure you. It was a big disappointment because we thought he was going to say yes. <laughs> and I, I still claim to be one of the, uh,
2: possibly only the only person on this planet that has ever said no to Jackie Stewart about anything. So, uh, you know, I I, honestly, it was a difficult decision and I was very actually genuinely upset that I had to say no, but I kind of, I, it was too much of a unknown because they, they'd not actually raced at all. So um, I, as lovely as it might have seemed, uh, and I would love to have driven for, for Jackie and Paul, but, um, uh, you know, I, I went,
0: I, I, I came down the side of the Irish. God, guys, though, two <laughs> great racing dynasties. Can you imagine the Hills and the Stuarts racing together? That would have been something else, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah, it would have been good. It would have been good, but we'll never know now. So
2: that's it. We'll have to live without that. I'm sorry, Jackie. I've said sorry before. I'll say it again publicly. I am sorry. Well, I'm still disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, You know, generally it would have been, you did very well. I mean, you came in, uh, did you in your first season get a podium at Monaco, was it? Uh, yeah, was we did. Later, the, later,
1: the first yeah. season yeah. we finished second to, to Schumacher. In the rain with Rubens Barrichello driving, um, a great race he drove, and to win your first Grand Prix in your first season was a big deal. We finished, I think, fifth in the World Championship in our first year, because we had a few uh, podiums uh, and a few good, you know, point finishing. Went back to sixth position in those days. So, and it only lasted three years, and then Ford Motor Company wanted to buy it back. Jackie, what was harder work? being a racing driver or a team boss? Without any any thought, immediately being a team boss. I think when that was going on at that time with Bernie and Max uh, running Formula One, uh, uh, Bernie's a great, and he's a good friend and now I think he's one of the nicest people in the world. <laughs> but then as a team owner, a young team owner, uh, it was a nightmare. <laughs> uh, you know, having been into the sport as deeply as I was uh, as a driver for as many years as I you know, was driving and then to become an owner of a Formula One team with Paul uh, was a huge undertaking. One of the biggest things that I've ever had to do in my life, I think. But it was a nightmare. And we didn't want to sell it in the end, but Ford wanted to buy it. And there's nothing that a Scotsman would like other than what happened in that respect. Because we did sell it eventually, but um fortunately reasonably well. But it was a it was a big, big challenge. It was hard work. Much more hard work than driving, I can tell you. Damon, did have you ever thought about a uh, Hill
0: Grand Prix take two? Um well I, I think I got a bit of an insight, you know, with my dad
2: tried to start a team as well, um, and that took up a lot of time and my mum being a bit sort of You know, a bit upset about him going back into things and it took up every split second he had, as Jackie's just told you. And I can remember we were on holiday and Alan Prost had come to see me because he wanted me to drive for his team. Oh, God. Did you turn
0: him down as well?
2: Well... (laughs) so I'm I'm literally lounging by the pool with my family and in in the south of France and Alan Prost turns up and he goes he goes ah I'd forgotten how wonderful it is to be a driver (laughs) (laughs) and so he just basically uh, he was working his nuts off poor thing and and he wanted me to drive for him and I very stupidly uh, said something which i now regret which was I, I didn't want to drive for them because they were too french meaning that i would be the only english person in the team but it sort of came out as a bit insulting to all the to the french so apologies uh pardon moi, uh alain and uh, to le to le monde francaise but um I, I could have done with a bit of coaching from jackie on everything really that's
0: what that would have helped my career well I think it's time to say thank you very much to Sir Jackie Stewart. Jackie, thank you very much for chatting to us today. It's been great. Well,
1: I've enjoyed it. Good company to be chatting with.
0: I'm glad you enjoyed it because it's been great
2: talking to you. And Tom and I are very, very delighted you've come on the F1 Nation podcast.
1: No, no, my pleasure. I'll unplug.
0: (laughs) Wow, Damon. Well, there is... Sir Jackie Stewart, live and unplugged. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's off now. He's off doing something else. He'll be on a flight in about a few minutes. He never stops. So much energy. But hey, what a great chat. <laughs> Did you notice at one point he said he makes love to the car? Oh, yes,
2: yes. He's, uh, he's, uh, he's a bit of a lover, isn't he, Jackie? You know, he's <laughs> <laughs> very romantic out there. And of course, it was, it was all about that. Light is right is another one of his sayings. So if it feels light, it's right. And uh, mm. I sort of know what he means, but he probably doesn't know how he does it. He's talented. That's why he was quick. I think he was one of those guys who just had it. And and he did amazingly well, you know, as an ambassador and also a safety campaigner. So he's, he's been an advocate for all kinds of things in his life, even after he stopped racing. Do you know he never drove? He ne- once he stopped driving in racing cars, he never drove on the road. He used to have a guy called Jerry drive him around.
0: Well, it's got to be a bit of a come down sitting in a traffic jam, right? If you've been racing Formula One, do you still drive or have you got someone who drives you DH?
2: No, no, I have not. I don't, I don't let anyone drive me, Tom. Least of all, I don't know, maybe I'll let you have a go one day. <laughs> but they were good questions, weren't they, too? So, uh, Oh, great questions. It's great to get these these questions coming in and firing and getting some answers also from Jackie. So we should maybe call it Ask Jackie. But anyway, it's still called ask Damon Hill at gmail.com and it's an audio message. So if you get got more questions and things that have occurred to you, then just record your message and uh, we'll answer them best we can.
0: I owe my love of porridge to Jackie Stewart. Did you know that? No, I didn't.
2: There's so much I don't know about you, Tom. <laughs> uh, that's possibly one of the things I didn't want to know about you.
0: I went, porridge. Do you know what? Scott's porridge oats. Yeah. Well, the other oats are available. I have porridge every day because Jackie right. has porridge every day. And I, I learned this when I went to the 99 Nürburgring Grand Prix with him. It was an amazing thing. Myself and brilliant photographer called Darren Heath. We tracked Jackie for the whole weekend. We flew out from Luton on his plane to the race we ate dinner with them I sat next to Phil Collins at dinner did he have porridge no but he, Phil didn't <laughs> no, Mr Collins didn't <laughs> but Mr Stewart did and what at dinner not at dinner oh no he, sorry he, not a, no not at well <laughs> not a porridge it, for gruel.
2: breakfast <laughs> yeah. lunch and dinner
0: anyway so it's, but Jackie said he sat there having his porridge and I thought oh I don't really know about porridge and um, I started then and I'm still going the love of porridge love it yeah we normally have a section called Any Other Business, don't we, at this point in the show? Any Other Business. So
2: what's occurred to you, Tom? We've been watching, of course, like Hawks, uh, the, the Evolution. We've got a qualifying on Friday night at Silverstone because they're going to have their support race. Yeah, We have, eight. yeah. That's, that's, that's new this week, isn't it? What time are they going to do qualifying on Friday 6 p.m. But of course, we we have light long into the evening, so it won't be a light problem, I don't think. The only thing is, I'm thinking. So the idea, I suppose, is that people can finish work and leg it up to Silverstone and
0: watch qualifying, or get home from work and watch qualifying. I've I've, I've thought for a while that they're going to try. I, I always think the next thing to happen is a midweek race. Do you know how all the Champions yeah. League football Tuesday night. Well, let's why not have a Grand Prix on a Tuesday night? Maybe in Austria, they could they could
2: have the race on the Wednesday. Why not? And they, and then get home earlier. <laughs> or <laughs> well, just do it straight back to back basically they have a two race they have a race on a sunday and a race on a monday actually why don't they do that why don't they move it forward a bit so that the race qualifying takes place on thursday or something and then they can have a race on saturday and a race on sunday they're bang you've got two grand
0: prix in one weekend and once you've done all the practice for the first one you don't need practice for the second race do you
2: no we don't want pra- we don't want practice yeah. the more they practice the more they work out what to do and the
0: less mistakes they make and less Interesting it is, you know. So just we, bounce from one race to the next race. I like this right race, race yeah. on Sunday, another race on Monday. So we, we
2: should organise F one. We should do it actually. <laughs> I think you could make me FIA president. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh DH, great stuff. Well, I'm off to Monaco in about three hours, actually. So I better start getting organised for that. That's um, early, isn't it? Well, it all happens a day early, doesn't it? Oh yes, it does. Course Thursday, yeah. Yeah. And I can't wait to see the McLarens in their gorgeous golf colour scheme. One of the most iconic liveries at one of the most iconic racetracks.
2: Well, have a lovely time. What can I say? I'm sorry you're South not going to be France, there. France, Portugal.
0: Yeah, I've, I will... i were going to brave it out back here and we'll be watching on telly. And if I manage to get into the cellar of the Hermitage again, I'll send you a picture. Do that. Yeah, have a nice... But Have a bottle on me. Go on. <laughs> but not an expensive one, right? From the, the cl- bottom of the list. Okay, of... <laughs> that will still be expensive, you know that. If you're probably about £3,000. Yeah. Well, it's been great to chat and it's probably time to end the
2: show okay we've got to go sometime should we do it then well thank you very much for listening to this
0: edition of f1 nation (laughs) what have i got to say (laughs) (laughs) on Uh. f1 nation is produced by f1 in association with audiobook see you next week